This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers, on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio brings you relevant and detailed discussions of software engineering topics at least once a month. SE Radio is brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine, online at computer.org slash software. For Software Engineering Radio, this is Elena Salinas. I'm here at Microsoft with James Whitaker, distinguished technical evangelist at Microsoft. He has held numerous roles, such as architect at Microsoft and engineering manager at Google, where he was responsible for testing Chrome, Google Maps, Google Web Apps. He's well known in the testing world and has written popular books on software testing, such as How Google Tests Software, among many others. He also wrote a blog post that went viral titled Why I Left Google. James, welcome to Software Engineering Radio. Thank you. Is there nice to be here. Thank you. Is there anything you would like to add about yourself? Oh, no, I'm pretty much out there. Okay. In your book, Career Superpowers, Succeeding on Purpose, you begin by stating that people should run their careers like companies are run. What are some of the aspects from top executives that can apply to running your own career in technology? Yeah, I actually think my friend Donna Sarkar puts this even better. She says you should be the CEO of yourself, right? Um, and, and once you kind of take a step back and look at your career as a project in itself, I think you begin to apply many of the skills that are making you succeed for your company to make you succeed for yourself. So that's kind of the general idea. Uh, be mindful, not just of the work that you're doing for others, but the work that you're doing for yourself. Because I think so many people get to the point where 100% of what they do accrues to other people's priorities. And you can do that all your life. Sometimes you get lucky. Sometimes working really hard for your company gets you recognized for your company. I don't think that is the most probable outcome. I think the most probable outcome is that all that work that accrues to your company, the company just takes. And it doesn't mean the companies are evil. They're not doing this on purpose. But, you know, the companies have shareholders to worry about. They have a board of directors to worry about. They have, you know, more important people than you. Uh, and so that's kind of the bottom line. No one is going to put the effort into your career like you will. Right. I, the thing in a class I like to say is that your boss has one career that's more important than any other. It ain't yours. <laughs> okay. And so that's kind of the idea. But I think Donna put it really well. You know, you are the CEO of your own you career. You are the CEO. So taking control of your own career. and But like you said, companies do care about others, like the shareholders. So there there's, has to be a balance. And they have to, right? That's idea. what being a company is about. I'm not trying to make paint any of these companies as, as evil. You know, they have a bottom line, and, and you should too. And so you should take, you should take heart from that. They're, your company is putting itself first. Why can't you? And, and if both of you all are paying attention to yourselves, and yet you still have this interaction that's amazing, uh, you know, and, and they're able to, to get value out of you, you're able to get value out of them, that's perfect. Everyone's happy. No one's walking around angry and having all this career and promotion angst uh, to deal with. And that's not fun. 
when you started your career or your first jobs, were you at the beginning the type of employee that just cares about others, like pleasing other people, or were you always in control of your own career? Was no, there a moment? No, when certainly you wasn't. In fact, that's one of the reasons I teach uh, all these things now because when I, I wish someone like me had been there when I was starting out to tell me how things were because I put all my effort into you know making my boss happy, into meeting my commitments, and and you know doing you know the the biggest thing for me is my boss say, oh yeah, you're on track for promotion. You know, two more years, you should be able to get it. You know, no one should be gunning for promotion. You should be gunning for impact. You should be gunning for, you know, your own passion and your own ambitions and, and the company's ambitions. And, you know, I, 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 I hate companies for doing that to us, for, you know, dangling that promotion. If there's one thing that, that's, that is, you know, borderlines evil, that's evil. Stop that. It's not about the promotion. It's about the impact. And, and you know, that number, you know, at Microsoft, we start in, you know, what is it, level 59 or something and go up to whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, the 60s. And at Google, it was 1 to 10. And that number may, means too much to too many people. Whether you're a 4 at Google or a 63 at Microsoft, it shouldn't matter. It should be, you know, I'm valued. My impact is amazing. And if you, want, if you need a number, mm -hmm. your salary is that number. Um, because you know the truth of the matter is, is we've got we've got 65s here who make less than than 63s, and and you know it's really that if you if you need a number, use the your your the bottom line because that's the number that your your parents, your your kids, your boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, they don't care if you're level 64. Uh, they care how much you bring home. That's what <laughs> yeah. actually impacts them. So if you need a number, use that number. So yeah, I, it took me many years to, to, to the realize. point where I got to, to where I, I started paying attention to myself and my own needs. And, a, and when that happened, a funny thing occurred. I actually became more valuable to my employer. You know, my first employer was the FBI, and I hated my job. And, and uh, I could have been so much more valuable to them if I had liked my job. Mm -hmm. And I, the thing that makes people like their job is to see the job pay back, more than just salary, but to pay back in terms of, mm -hmm. of making you smarter, making you better. Exactly, you know? yeah. And a couple of months ago, as a Microsoft employee, I attended your talk on career superpowers, which was really good. And one of the other things you, that you mentioned was the idea of working hard versus working smart, which we touched a little bit earlier. But for people that work in technology, why isn't working hard always enough? Working hard is tough. You know, the, the harder you work, it really depends on what you're working hard on. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're working hard on something that's going to accrue to your longer-term career, go for it. Work hard. But if you're just working hard on, on your company's priorities, you, you end up, company's priorities change. So you'll be working hard on Project A, for six months, and then the next six months would be Project B, and the next six months, and all those projects have a different set of skills. And so you end up working hard on, on 10 different things and becoming a jack of all trades. Um, and jack of all trades is, you understand this is what you want, right? Who, as a manager, as a company, who wouldn't want 100 people who could do 100 different things each? But you, you, that's not the door to success. The door to success is to develop genuine expertise in something. Uh, and you mentioned, you know, software testing is, I, I've, I've become expert in three things mm -hmm. uh, over, over the source of my career, uh, testing, security, and storytelling. And, and those, if when I look back and say, why was I successful? Why am I so happy with my job? 
Why is it that I love the work I do? Why is it that I make the money that I make? All of those things. And it's all because I was really good at something. And I've had three somethings. And so if you're working hard to get really good at something, that's that's a, a valuable work. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you what, you're, I, I never thought I was working hard at software testing because I loved it. I never thought I, I was working hard at computer security because I loved it. Mm-hmm. I never, never pictured myself, oh, I tried really hard to be a storyteller. I mean, I put in a lot of okay. hours and loved every single one of them. So it doesn't feel like hard work when you're doing the right yeah. thing. And that's an interesting point that you bring up, uh, specializing in something. And that's what people at the top tend to be. For example, I heard... They uh, all are. They're all specialists, right? Scott yeah. Guthrie, specialist in the cloud. Chi yeah. uh, Lu, specialist in, in, in search. Yeah. Um, and, and just all across the board. Harry Shum, specialist in AI. We have, they're all... You look at them, Google, Microsoft, Apple, they're specialists. Yeah. Of course they are. You get really, really good at something, you get noticed. You get really, really good at something, and opportunity just opportunity begins to come to you. So if there's one thing that anybody gets out of this interview, it's pick something that you're passionate about and make yourself really good at it. Yeah. And another area of this is the notion of working smart, which one of the stories that you mentioned was there were certain aspects from testing that you didn't like. So here comes the point when you should try to delegate some work to others? Yeah, there's really, there's really two things. If, um, you, you took good notes. Um, so, um, you know, when, when you're working and you're not happy, take note of that. It's easy to blame, oh, Microsoft's giving me this crappy work or whatever. It's a, take note of the things that you aren't happy with. Take note of the things that you are happy with. And, and when, you, when you're unhappy with something, you have two choices. You can either figure out how to do it better, and I was pretty good at that. Like, you know, I, I didn't like the way bug finding happened, and so I changed it. I started cataloging testing techniques and ended up with, hey, the, you know, there's really only 17 test cases on the planet that anybody really needs to know, 17 forms of test cases that anybody needs to know, right? And so I, I kind of dug into it so deep because I didn't like the way people were doing it that I ended up inventing something that was kind of amazing. And I wrote a book about it called How to Break Software. And it's that stupid book, that little book is still in print after all these years because apparently a lot of other people weren't happy with that part of their job too and, and it resonated. And then the second is to delegate, you know, or, or just to, you know, try to get rid of it completely. And so, you know, I, I think I had two examples of how I, I, I got rid of bug reports out of my team. And then the second one was my 10-minute test plan where, you know, we boiled down test planning to just 10 minutes because it turns out nobody liked it. Everybody was struggling with it. And the idea was let's strip it down to its absolute bare minimum and just do that. And it was really transformative across all, all of my teams at, at, at Google and, and apparently everywhere else too because that 10-minute test plan blog, blog post went, went viral. Yeah. It was pretty cool. And what was the name of the book that you mentioned? Uh, How to Break Software. How to break so-, so I'll include that in the show notes. And a little bit more on this is definitely try to delegate some of the work, but somebody has to do that work. So well, maybe. You know, think about the think about the bug report story that I told. You know, I yeah. I basically got my software developers to just fix bugs instead of having to write a bug report, and and they liked it because there was no record of their bug. And and so you know, I I went to them and you know talked about the bug. We started just fixing them. And so a lot of magical things happened then. You know, no one enjoyed the bug reporting process. I liked finding bugs, hated reporting them. 
My developers didn't like reading the bug reports. They'd much rather talk to me about it. We ended up completely doing away with bug reports on, on that team. And, and it was much more impactful because I would find a bug and I'd say, hey, you know, whatever, you know, Randy, uh, whatever, come over here and check this out. And they would immediately do it. And, and so it, the culture, because we stopped writing bug reports, the entire culture of our team changed. And I remember when the manager came to me and said, I don't know how to judge your work. I'm trying to write your performance review. You haven't, you haven't submitted a single bug this entire yeah, quarter. That's what I'm thinking. And, and so, you know, I, and I, when I said, well, why don't you, instead of basing it on the bug reports, why don't you base my review this time on peer feedback? And all my developers were like, the they best feedback possible. And, and yeah. so my boss was like, okay, you, you guys have clearly you know, because that was when Agile was really big and it was really new, and it was, and it was like, oh yeah, it's Agile, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and so it ended up being a good thing for everybody. And and because the process, you know, didn't reward somebody who didn't file a lot of bug reports, the process ended up getting changed too. Just nothing but good came out of that. It was a yeah. pretty amazing period of my life. Yeah, that's a great story. Let Let's talk now about managers and mentors. In your opinion. What should be the role of a manager in a technical team, like software engineers or software developers? Well, here's one of those Microsoft versus Google things where I think Google wins. And I don't like granting Google um, victories, but, but you know, when you're doing something smart, you're doing some, something smart whether I agree with the way you do business or not. At Google, I felt like uh, managers were kind of like a peer who just accepted a little bit more administrative duty, or at least that's the way it was under the Eric Schmidt years. Maybe it's changed. Mm-hmm. Actually, I, have, I hear from my Google friends it has changed now. Uh, right. But but the idea was, you know, you're a man, you step up to manage the group. You manage the work. You don't really manage the people. You manage the workload. You you make sure everybody's collaborating. You make sure the work's getting done. You you know you you accepted that kind of administrative uh, uh, position. Your managers may or may not, but it's probably not going to be the right mentor uh, for you. And I think telling managers, hey, you know, you've got to nurture your people, you've got to grow your people, that's an awful big burden to put on, to put on managers. Because to me, mentoring is, you should have, a, you should have 10 mentors. If, if you, you, know, you really want to get good at programming, your manager is probably not the one that's going to mentor you to be a better programmer. That's going to be somebody else. If you want to re- get really good at storytelling, I guarantee your manager is not going to be able to do that because I've heard them tell stories. They're terrible at it. <laughs> so, yeah. so you, know, you pick mentors based on the skills that you want to nurture. And, and you don't pick one mentor to nurture 10 skills because that mentor doesn't have them. And you know, mentors set the bar. If you get a subpar mentor, that's the best you can shoot for is being subpar. And the story I tell is, you know, by C++, I'm a terrible C++ programmer. I went from a, 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 you know, above average C programmer to a terrible C++ programmer because the person I was looking to mentor me wasn't that good at it. But I didn't know they weren't that good at it because they were better than me. They looked like an expert. So you really got to shop around for mentors and pick them. It's to me, it's skill based. What skill do you want to nurture? Pick a mentor who's really good at that. And then, and then get them, them to buy into the relationship. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't expect, you shouldn't expect that from a manager. Okay. And one of the things Sheryl Sandberg mentions in her book, Lean In, she doesn't recommend that you explicitly ask someone, will you be my mentor? Do you agree with this? Yeah, whether, uh, you know, I've got a bunch of mentees and some of them consider 
in a mentor-mentee relationship. Some of it consider friendship. Some of them we just get together occasionally and, and have a coffee or a beer. Uh, it, it's a label. Who cares uh, whether it's a, a mentor or not? I've, if you have to, I think I prefer to not label it because as soon as you label me as your mentor, mm-hmm. I, I am now <laughs> obligated. I'm now stressed out by, okay, wait a minute. If she fails, mm-hmm. that's going to look bad on me because I'm her, quote, mentor. Okay. Um, you know, so so I think the people, I, and it's it's t- tough to say. Like uh, Donna Sarkar and I have mentioned her earlier. Or he, her, she and I are teaching a class on New Year's resolutions on on January fifth, and it's a career based class. On you, you should come. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll send you the link. You know, I I don't. I think she has called me her mentor before, which is weird because she's taught me as much as I've taught her, yeah. and it's that reciprocal relationship. That's when it gets really powerful. When when you're both teaching each other something, there's a reason for both of you all to be there rather than, hey, I'm just going to make you better as your, mm-hmm. as your mentor. When you call it a mentor, it, it sounds like a one-way street, and it shouldn't be a one-way street. So I think Cheryl and I are agreeing there. Mm-hmm. And like you mentioned, you found your most successful mentorship relationships where, where you were giving something, but you were also getting something in return. Do you have a concrete example on that? Like... They, they were teaching me C++, but I'm a millennial, so I was teaching them uh, about social media or something. Yeah, and that's kind of the idea, right? I mean, my, my first, um, well, my first uh, PhD advisor at the University of Tennessee didn't really work out, right? It was kind of, definitely, it was a one-way street. I would give, you know, give, give him some work, and he'd say, okay, do this and do that. And, and the second one was much better because... Um, you know, he was an expert in machine learning, Markov chain theory, and things like that. I was trying to apply that to software reliability, and we ended up writing a paper together. You know, he did the machine learning part of it. I did the software reliability part of it. And that paper was sort of the focal point of our work. And it got published in IEEE Transactions on Software Engineering, right? Top-rate journal. And so he got a paper on his resume. Mm-hmm. And I got to learn all this stuff, and he got to learn all this stuff about software reliability. He didn't know. And, you, you know, it wasn't one of these things of when can we schedule this appointment. You know, he'd walk by my desk and say, I've got an idea. And we just, you know, fill up the whiteboard. Mm-hmm. And then I'd walk by his desk and say, I've got an idea. And we'd go in and fill up his whiteboard. Mm-hmm. I don't think I ever made an appointment with the guy uh, at all. And so that's the kind of relationship when you're in something like that, rejoice, because both both parties are going going to learn. Yeah. So the way that you would approach a mentor, like let's say you want to learn Ruby on Rails, the way you would approach a mentor would be to ask questions from their field well, and so sort of build a friendship. First step, first step is even before that, who do you want to be your mentor? Right. So, so for something like Ruby, who's really good at it? You know, access to experts is the best way to learn. Mm-hmm. Somebody's already learned Ruby on Rails. Somebody's already, you know, looked at all the, oh, ah, this, you know, this is the best way to, you know, do a loop invariant or whatever in, in Ruby on Rails. They've already figured that out. Yeah. You don't have to if you have them to teach you. And so they're going to accelerate your learning. So, you know, get somebody who's really good at it and then learn a little bit about them and think, okay, what can I contribute to their life? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if you find that person, you, you found that person. But, but and it doesn't, you know, every single mentor-mentee relationship isn't going to be perfect. All of them are going to be flawed in, in some way, shape, or, or yeah. form. Like I remember, uh, you, you told me you're from Mexico. One of my best friends is Mexican, uh, David Garena. When he and I first started working together in, in Visual Studio, he was like this prolific bug finder. And my boss had been saying, oh, James, you should file more bugs. You should file more. And you, you know how I feel about filing bugs. And so he and I started working 
working together and I would teach him my techniques and he'd apply them. He started putting my name on all the bug reports that he was filing. So, you know, it was found by, by both. And so it was just this amazing, and, and I didn't ask him to do it. And, and he, but he was like, you know, you influenced, you taught me how to find all these bugs. I found all these bugs. And, mm-hmm. and it, a lot of them just happened naturally. I don't think okay, you should naturally. overthink it. Okay. You know, David and I were thrown together because we were both on the same team. And, you know, we both had this common interest. And so you end up finding mentors like that in everyday life. Uh, he taught me a lot about our product. Mm-hmm. I taught him a lot about how to find bugs. And it ended up being a really good relationship. He mentored me. I mentored him. Um, we both ended up getting review credit for it. Um, and it was just kind of this perfect relationship for, you know, this one period of time. So it's more organic. We don't mentor each other anymore. We just drink beer together now. So... We, talk, we talked a little bit about mentors. I want to shift back the topic to managers and the concept of one-on-ones. Many organizations have regular one-on-one meetings between the manager and the direct reports. Sometimes they have them to discuss the current status of tasks, but other times it might be to talk about your career and a promotion. Are one-on-one meetings useful? I hate my calendar. I hate having a, a regular occurring meetings. I don't know. There's a mental issue I have uh, with with one-on-ones, and and just over the years, I've noticed that most one-on-ones I had were a waste of time. You know, Why? Google, there was nothing to talk about. How long were those one-on-ones? Well, the you know half an hour, and but that's still a long time to waste because it's not just a half an hour that you're wasting of each time. So you know, one half an hour of your time, half an hour of my time. There's an hour. There's also getting there. There's also thinking about. There's also stopping the work that productive work I was doing, going to the one-on-one, and then coming back and then having to restart the productive work more slowly than 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 when I was. And so, I instituted a Google. You know, if you're in the zone, and you have a meeting with me, you have permission. That 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 is enough permission for you to just not even show up without an excuse. Just don't show up. Mm-hmm. I'll walk. I'll do a drive-by of your office, and if you're you're clearly working. I'm just not even going to say anything, right? No, no, no harm, no, no foul. This um, is more speaking on the side of you were a manager, right? And yeah. You, yeah what about that. the opposite? You going to your one-on-one with your manager? Also well, the same tougher. idea? That's tougher. I mean, what if your manager was saying? It's very difficult for you. If, if I was managing you, it'd be very difficult for you to sit, come to me and say, I think our one-on-ones were a waste of time, James. Maybe there's a better way that we could do this. That's tough because... If your manager is the type who really likes meetings, and let's face it, you've had that manager before, you've seen that manager before, they love to hold court, they love to hear the sound of their own voice, going to them and saying, I think our one-on-ones are a waste of time would, would be really tough. I think it's more of a group kind of discussion. If there's an LT meeting or if there's a big team meeting or an all hands where, you know, um, hey, does anybody else have any questions? That's the time. Raise your hand and say, I'd like to talk about our one-on-ones. Is there, you know, a way that we could make it so that one-on-ones were more on demand? Because it seems like I may be the, you know, the only one that feels this way, but it seems like there's a lot of time wasted in these. And, and I think most one-on-ones are a waste of time. If you, if, you need, if you have something to talk about, schedule the meeting. If you don't have anything to talk about, don't schedule the, the, the meeting. And my boss right now, John Shuchuk, and I are that way. We, 
we don't we we either if we schedule them you know then there's an email a few days out it's like this is my agenda okay what's your agenda this is my agenda that's not enough to justify a half an hour let's just get this done over email and then we just mm-hmm. and we keep on going how often do you meet with your manager on a one-on-one uh it's it's random you know if we have a project that we're working on together we'll meet once a week if we don't then we'll meet uh, every few months mm-hmm. as i was mentioning you said you meet more often when you have a project but one of the things that i've heard at least here at microsoft i don't know about other companies is that the one-on-one should be about your career development and not really like oh how's this task coming along what yeah, is your but thought I've on this i already debunked that right your manager the only thing your manager can really talk about is your next promotion not your career development your manager can't isn't really in a position to say okay you know you've you've amassed all these skills but you've never really mastered any of them you know have you ever had that conversation with a manager i don't think a lot of people have so i don't think managers i think expecting a manager to be an expert at career development is asking too much managers are managing the product and i think you're 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 in the project uh and and the people's impact on that that's what they should manage i don't I don't think it I think it's too much to expect a manager to be a, a career expert. Mm-hmm. And if you're relying so you know I said access to ex- access to experts is the best way to learn. If your manager is not an expert on career development, you're relying on him or her to help develop your career. You've picked the wrong mentor. Okay. So at a higher level what you're saying is regular one-on-ones not highly recommended more a flexible schedule. If you, ain't, if you don't have anything to talk about, don't meet. Yeah. And I also read, because uh, I've I've read about one-on-ones, for example, on Quora, like how to have a effective one-on-one. Well, what people say is, th- me, I should be the one that plans what we're going to talk about, okay, not so my now, manager. Now you have homework. Yeah, exactly. Right? So it's not just the, the time you're wasting during the meeting. It's time the way you're wasting preparing for the meeting. Yeah. You have so got no. to be kidding me. I bet the people writing these answers don't do a ton of technical work because if they did, they wouldn't want to take time out of that technical work to do homework for their meeting. Right? We have, we have people, I, I hear people call themselves a professional meeting attender, right? That's that's like that's all I do now anymore. And it's a, it's terrible, terrible that we do that. Um, I'd like to get hold of our our uh, centralized calendar server so I could, you know, see who's spending mo- more time at what what meetings and and the, the the sad part about it is it's the people who are getting the paid most or you know, the highest level people in the company that are attending the most meetings. And so we're paying a lot of money for professional meeting attenders. And this is why startups can outperform big companies because they're not sitting in meetings all the time. Mm-hmm. I wrote a blog post about this called the anti-meeting culture. I'm really, really against meetings. I'll include that in the show notes. <laughs> um, so you mentioned don't discuss your your career with your manager at the one-on-one. There's well, not don't discuss, but don't expect, lower your expectations. Lower your expectations. Yeah. But one thing that you did mention is the discussions you have is about the promotion and things like that. I've had friends, for example, say, I don't want to mention yes money motivates me because i might come off as too greedy or things like that you're me so if 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 you don't if you're not asking for something you're not going to get it you know i mean as a manager look when i was a manager in bing i had some 450 people in my org i had i don't know 18 direct reports something like that Mm -hmm. and and you know the ones who who were willing to just be quiet i was going to let them do that because 
that's the easiest thing for me. I'm overworked. I'm managing, you know, 200% of my effort is management. And, and if I can get by with managing less, I'm going to manage less so I can make my, myself happier. Managers are, are overburdened. And if it's important to you, you've got to, ask, you've got to step up and ask for it. Mm-hmm. You know, karma's not going to get you there. And, and look, oh, I don't want to seem greedy. You're not yeah. greedy. Your manager's making more money than you. <laughs> yeah. It's not greed. It's, hey, you know, am I at the level where I should be with, that everybody else, you know, is? is the, am I being – and, okay, Microsoft's not, probably not going to like me to say this. You know how you fight, figure out how valuable you are? You go out and you interview somewhere else. Microsoft doesn't want you to do that. If you work at Google, Google doesn't want you to, to go to have to figure out your value by getting an offer from, from Facebook or, or Amazon. But that's what we're going to do. And, and so your manager knows that. Your manager is going to want to talk to you about that to make, to make sure that, that you're happy. And you don't have to talk to your manager, at least at, my, at, at, at Microsoft. Uh, and at, I think at Google did this a, not less good than Microsoft. But we have HR business partners with every single team. And if you want to find out, you know, how you're doing, you don't have to have a conversation with your manager. You, if, you know, you can have a financial conversation with your HR business partner uh, that's completely confidential. And, and so then you find out, right? And then you can have a, a different conversation. Because you don't – money is, is important because the world runs on money. And just because you want more of it doesn't make you greedy. It just means you want a better lifestyle for yourself and your family. So, so stop thinking that you're, you're coming off as greedy. Uh, you're coming off as, as curious whether or not your impact. And you could just say that. Say, you know, I could go get a job offer from Facebook, or we could have a discussion about whether or not my impact and salary are equitable. I think yeah. if I was a manager and somebody said that to me, I'd be like, that was good. That was really good. Now let's talk about it. Because okay. none of us want you to go figure out your value by interviewing with another company. Yeah. Or if you have, for example, two employees that are – they're equally doing their share and they both work the same way but one of them keeps bugging you about the bonus and the promotion who are you going to give it to the quiet one or the one that keeps bugging yeah and, and, and the bugging so the bugging part there, there's a sweet spot for mm-hmm. bugging okay right? you, bug, you bug too much and you're going to be the person that they're willing to give up right okay oh, i'm sorry okay. you're too much work this is i don't want to talk about money all the time oh okay. but you know a nice honest conversation look i've gotten this review score for this long I'm putting everything into this. I don't want to make a big deal out of this, but can we talk about whether or not my impact and my uh, reward, whether I'm at the right spot? That's the way to put that conversation. And then it's a conversation uh, that's a question mark, not an accusation of, hey, I'm not making enough money. Mm-hmm. So keep it as a question mark. Okay. As opposed to, you know, a, a, an actual accusation. Give me more money or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so earlier you also mentioned leaving the company or interviewing i've heard recommendations of every six months go out and interview either internally or externally externally to get an idea of how much people are getting paid it's tough to get an average it's tough to say how mm-hmm. often you should do it but definitely um, how look, much if, would you if say? you're if you're if you're your job if you love your job and you're you're waking up and it's not a problem, right? It's like, like oh, good, I gotta go work. You just wake up and you get in and you you're loving your job and you love your coworkers. Why would you go interview? It's those periods of angst where I have a theory about like boredom and and anger in the workplace. Those two things come when you're not happy. 
if you find yourself bored during the day, that your boredom's like tapping you on the shoulder saying, hey, dude, you know, I'm not so sure you're in the right place because you know, you're surfing the web an awful lot. And so if you're, if you're mindful of that, that's probably the time where you should go out and interview. What else is out there? Maybe there's a job that's going to, to you know, be more engaging uh, uh, for you. Or if you, you, know, you feel like you're just, oh, man, why am I not getting that promotion? Why am I not yeah. getting that promotion? That's the time you go out and interview. And, and whether it's every six months or every two weeks or every three years, who, who knows? I don't want to put a time on it. But it's those periods of boredom. It's those periods of angst that you should go out and find out. Yeah. I mean, I, I interview on a fairly regular basis because I want to make sure my skills, my interview skills don't atrophy. For what position? Testing, security, or no, storytelling? No, my <laughs> positions are more like CTO level positions. Okay. That, uh, no, I don't want to do engineering, direct engineering management again. I've, I've, I've been there. I've done that. I've proven I'm good at, I'm good at it. Uh, but I want to make sure I can still, you know, just in case. Yeah. Um, if you're, this is not the world my father lived in where he could re rely on his employer and a pension and all this stuff. You got to rely on yourself now and make sure your skills, I want to make sure my skills are still marketable outside of, of Microsoft. And frankly, I think Microsoft isn't, would want that too, right? Why would Microsoft want a bunch of employees who can't get jobs at Google and Apple and, um, you know, all these companies. It, it would seem to me that the most valuable employees are the ones that your competitors would snap up in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. And so then you find out. You go out and interview, and maybe you go out and flunk all your interviews and think, you know, maybe this is why I'm not getting promoted. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and now you, you, you've learned to go out and learn something new so that you can, you can get promoted instead of just thinking you deserve it. Mm -hmm. So the two situations that I understood is the first one is if You're feeling bored, you're browsing the web right. too much. Something's wrong with your work yeah. karma. And the second one is, for example, you're really good at your job and you're enjoying it, but maybe you're being underpaid. Maybe you, you could do the know. same thing at Facebook for double the amount or you something. You never know. I mean, I, yeah. it's easy to get stuck at a company. You know, I was one of those, my first round through Microsoft, it was, I was one of those employees never talking about money. I was one of those employees just being quiet, trying my best to do my job. And, oh, of course, they're going to notice me one day. Well, they didn't. And I gave a talk at a conference, and somebody from Google noticed me. And he came up and said, dude, that was really good. Maybe there's this role, and there happened to be a better role for me at Google than Microsoft was willing to give me. And I left, and I have no regrets. Yeah, let's talk about that. You were here at Microsoft for several years, and you went to Google. Then you came back to Microsoft. The viral post happened. And you came four levels higher than when you left, and this was in three years, is that correct? Yeah, yeah that's about right, yeah. Which is unthinkable internally, I think. So why did your value increase so much? The value didn't increase. The value was finally recognized. Um, okay. I think that you know when I first came to Microsoft, I had no idea what the levels were. I, was, I had been an academic and a startup founder for the last 10 years. Okay. And so they hired me at a level, and they're like, oh, yeah, that's principal, and that's really good. And, and it wasn't until after I got here realized, no, it's not. <laughs> you know, I had a peer uh, academic who we were both on the same, same boards. Um, if anything, I was probably uh, slightly uh, more accomplished than him. And he was hired at Microsoft two levels higher. He was hired at MSR, and apparently they're higher. I don't know. But anyhow, and that was like immediate. That's hard to recover from very difficult to recover from because you know the idea that you're going to get in and then get you know double and triple promoted just because you're that good that doesn't happen right mm -hmm. and so google corrected that when they when they hired me 
And so, you know, sometimes you just got to leave. Sometimes a big company is a big company and, and there's no, you know, there's no way to, to get around or through the barriers. And I had to leave. I, I think if I hadn't left, I would have, I would have left anyhow. If I hadn't, I hadn't gone to Google, I would have gone somewhere because I was stuck. And sometimes you get in these positions and you just can't go anywhere, right? Like, oh yeah, I'd promote you, but you know, there's like six people that have been here longer and done all these things and you're gonna have to wait for them to get promoted or, you know, this and then in the next six months, it was just like, oh, well, I didn't get any promotion slots this time. So you're gonna have to wait another time. And, you know, I met a, a Google exec at a conference. We had a conversation. He's like, you're really good. We have this need that your skills fill. Why don't you come over here and do it? And I did. So I, I left Microsoft for Google for the opportunity. Mm-hmm. But I came back because, you know, I woke up one day and realized I was working for an advertising company and I didn't like it. Okay. And so um, I wrote that blog post and, and, and came back. And, you know, I think that, was, that gave Microsoft a fresh chance to look at me and my resume and what I could do for them. And it was the right role. And the experience you had gained from those years at Google. I kicked ass at Google. Google, yeah. Google and I got along really well from just a work perspective. Uh, I don't know what it is about me and Google, but we, we hit it off really well. Mm-hmm. And one of the other things you mentioned in your career superpowers talk is something that you said that goes, did you choose your job or did your job choose you? <laughs> yeah. Can you explain this? Yeah, and so, you know, that at Microsoft, my first job at Microsoft chose me. How, how you know, said, what is a job that chooses you? A, a job that chooses you is, you know, one that's just there. And, you know, that was there. Like Microsoft's like, okay, we, they interviewed and they made me an offer. And so that was the job choosing me. Here's the job based on what we, the interview, this is what, what, what you've got. And, it, and, and it's much better if you choose the job, if you go out and say, okay, here's a 10 things I could do. Let me kind of dabble in each one of them. Say, oh, that's the one I like the best. I'm going for that one. Mm-hmm. Right? I've opted into it. Um, when you don't have a choice, the job choose you, and you get in, and you have to do what the, the what the job uh, what the job directs. Mm-hmm. And so, so it, it, it's subtle, but it's really important. Um, if you know somebody comes and taps you on the shoulder and says, "Hey, you'd be great at this. Why don't you come and do this work?" That's the job choosing you because. You, you know, and, and generally, when people say you'd be great at this, why don't you come over here and work for me? What they're really saying yeah. is, I need somebody to do this. I could talk you into come over here and doing this. So why don't you come over here and do this? Be really careful when when an interviewer says, "Oh, you'd be perfect for this." What they're really saying is, I need somebody to do this, and I think I can talk you into it. What should you be hearing if it was the opposite? If it was the opposite, you would have you would have a, a, a say in it. The, the, what you would you hear in is the person would say, "Here's the work we think we want done. How do you think? Is this the right work that we want done?" And and that's the conversation I had with Google. They're like, "Oh, because Google tried to do the same thing. Hey, why don't you come in and do X, Y, and Z?" And I said, "Hey, why don't instead I come in and 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 not?" And I negotiated this right. No work for the first two months. No, no. What? No, for, you for, joined and for the first two months right. you didn't work. That's right. And my boss, you know, we negotiated this on the way and he's like, yeah, I'll give you two months. You go around the company, you figure out what's going on. You figure out, you know, the best way you can impact And And sometime within that two months, you come to me and say, here's what I want to do. Here's the impact it'll make. And then, and it turned out he agreed with me and, and I went off and, and did it. And so, you know, it was a mix of things like maps and Chrome and, 
and and it worked out it worked out really good for me mm-hmm. because I was in control the whole time. Mm-hmm. Do you think somebody earlier in their career can get away with? Yeah, that? just at a smaller level, the mo- no, most certainly you can yeah. you can get away with it. Or maybe find a mix of things in the job. Like That's yes, I'm a good fit for this, but then suggest new things to the team or like what or about just do I, them or just do them right yeah. the problem with asking permission is you've gone on record saying can i do this and if somebody says no okay that's a problem so just do it you know and and then expertise comes into play here too the better you are at something you know i was so good at software testing that nobody at google questioned me when you know the when linus upson and the chrome guys came to me and said hey we really want you to work with us Here's the work as we see it. I said, no, you're wrong. That's not the work. The, here's the way you should be doing it. They looked at it and said, ah, okay, right? And they didn't know if I was right or wrong. They just knew I knew more about software testing than they did. And so they, they hired me to do the work that I wanted to do. And, and within you know, a few months, it turned from testing work to development work because that's really what I was gunning for. And, and, it, worked out, and it worked out perfect. So the more you know... So about something the more valuable you are and the more you get to make your own rules so again the same idea of not being a jack of all trades specializing jack of all trades tough you're always somebody's always going to know more about every subject than you yeah and and you're you're never really going to be able to exert your true talent mm-hmm. and you chose software testing which was super important in the 90s when we were Shipping CDs and things like that. And Y2K. Y2K made it so (laughs) important. It made it so cool. Yeah. So that really worked out for you. And in the world of of today, what resources or how do you you project what to specialize in? Well, I mean, you take a look at the buzz in the industry. And in the the 1990s, testing was perfect because we shipped things on CDs. If they had bugs in them, it was a really big problem. Um, in, in the 2000s, it was computer security. That's in, you know, all those viruses. You know, they were talking about viruses and worms and vulnerabilities and exploits. They were making up new words to describe, you know, what was going on. Clearly, that's a big deal. And so if you look around the world now, where are they making up new words? Well, in, in big data, right? Uh, when, when exabyte and then yottabyte and zettabyte. These words didn't exist a few years ago. So it's clearly, you know, anything that has to do with data and then the analysis of data, that's... AI and machine learning. And, and so um, it doesn't take a huge attention span to figure out what people are talking about. And, and the good thing about getting in early is the amount you need to learn to become an expert isn't that much. You know, the software testing field was really small in the 19th. I was an expert within six months. Really? Computer six secu- months? Six months. Computer security is four months, right? I gave a four months into computer security, I gave a talk at RSA and won best presentation. Okay. Um, because, you know, first of all, I know how to learn. And, and you know, access, how do you learn? Access to experts is the best way to learn. You need to take my creativity class now. Oh, yes. Because that's the first step is how to learn better than studying. Studying is pretty much everything you learned in school is the worst way to learn. Especially uh, now in this digital age where we have Coursera and things like that. Experts are out there. Yeah. Experts are out there. You're, you're no well, longer. even experts in Coursera, right? Andrew and G. Who, who worked on deep learning is teaching a class there. So you get the best experts. That's right. You get the best teachers instead of yeah. the ones that, you know, you went to school in Mexico. I went to school in the U.S. And you went to UT, but you got, you had the class, you had the teacher you had, right? Yeah. They, whoever you happen to show up to, that was your teacher. And, and you get to choose now. You're not stuck with the teacher that's assigned to you in these, in these classrooms. So, yeah. so that's a, a, a huge difference. So, so learning is a lot faster. Mm-hmm. And so now, you know, you get in early and you can learn this stuff 
like crazy. You know, deep learning, we're only a few years really into the whole deep learning uh, model. And, you know, it, now's the time. Mm -hmm. Before we finish, I want to talk about having a developer pitch or a developer story. What is the developer story? Everybody needs to have a story. It can, and can you, you know, tell your own story? And can you, and are you ready for that? Mm -hmm. You know, my, my story I tell that, you know, I met Larry Page in the bathroom and he asked me, what do you do here? Mm -hmm. And I had a story and it really resonated with him and he remembered me. Mm -hmm. You know, he, I, I looked him in the eye and said, I've been saving the world from Internet Explorer since 2009. And he's like, oh, you work for Chrome. And we had this, you know, this discussion, but that saving the world from Internet Explorer since 2009, that was my, that was my pitch, my talk got it now. And so everybody should really think about their value to a project and, and you know, what are their unique skills and what do they bring? Because somebody's going to ask you that. Somebody's going to say, what do you do here? Um, what products do you work on? And if you say something boring like, oh, I work on um, uh, OneNote, that, that, that's not, uh, so what? Tell me, tell me why that's important. Tell me why that's special. Build that in, you know. One, one note is diagnosing learning disorders as kids read material in one note. And all you have to say is, I work on one note? Come on. You've got to be able to draw other people into your story and make them interested in you. And so you take all this cool stuff that your product does and weave a, weave a story around them. You know, I give all these talks around Microsoft, and people are always asking me, why do you do this? Because you don't have to. It's not part of your job. You're an engineer. Why are you giving talks about, you know, how to beat Google and how to beat Amazon? And, and you know, I, I say because I'm trying to empower Microsoft to achieve more. Because that's Microsoft's company motto, empower the world to achieve more. And so I'm trying to empower Microsoft to achieve, achieve more. And that story immediately resonates. And so think about it. And, and, in fact, if you want to give people in your show homework, you know, think about your value and your impact and, you know, whether it's saving the world from Internet Explorer, whether it's, whether it's empowering the world, to, your company to achieve more. What is it that you're doing? And can you, you know, within a few seconds, get the value of you into someone else's head? And that's incredibly powerful because now people know why you're special. So this is good for networking basically it's good for networking it's good for pretty much any, i mean at some point you are going to meet someone who can help you who can do something for your career it maybe it's a vc maybe it's a, a more senior executive at the at the company right you're walking down the hall here at microsoft and and uh, peggy johnson stops you and says right the EV, evp of business development she stops you and says tell me what do you do here Right yeah. now's your that's your chance and and how often that chance is going to come I guarantee it, it will come for all of us you're going to meet somebody who can help you and it's all going to depend on the words that come out of your mouth whether or not they will so think about your value think about your contribution and and how do you get that inside somebody else's head mm -hmm. in just a matter of the few seconds that you're giving mm -hmm. and with your Larry Page story what I also think is you made him think. Even if it was a little bit with the phrase that you told him, I activated his brain like like crazy because yeah. he was going. You know, I had peers calling me and say, "Dude, what'd you say to Larry in the bathroom, man? He's always he's coming around asking us about our story. We don't have no story. Why don't you stop peeing with Larry, right?" Oh. So, 
So, um, uh, it, it, you know, it was, and it was really impactful. And he, I'm, I'm pretty darn sure he remembers me to this day. Mm-hmm. And not for my why I left Google, but for... Yeah, right. probably. I'm, I bet I could just picture him reading that article and say, was that the guy that was peeing in the... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, last question. What, what advice do you have for someone that just starting that's just joining the technology field as a software engineer or, or as a software developer i'd say really watch yourself work i mean learn that's the obvious answer but watch yourself learn and watch yourself work and and when when something seems to be really valuable take note of that hey that's you know my company appreciates it when i do that when something seems particularly enjoyable take note of that hey i really enjoy doing that kind of work when something seems really impactful, like the whole team's like, well, I do that, that was awesome. Take note of that. And, and I think you, you're gonna end up finding a collection of activities that you're good at, mm-hmm. that the company values, and that you get noticed in your team. And when you, the more of those sorts of activities that are part of your day, the happier you're gonna be, the more you're gonna get paid, and the more people are going to appreciate what you can do. Mm-hmm. And then that's when opportunity begins to just come. Mm-hmm. And you're just applying machine learning to yourself. That sounds like a model. You're and labeling I your activities. You, I've never thought about it that way. I like it. I like, yeah. it. I like it a lot. Well done. See, you're already becoming a great storyteller. <laughs> thank you. Well, James, thank you for coming on the show. It was great talking to you. It was wonderful to be here. For Software Engineering Radio, this was Elena Salinas. <laughs> Thanks for listening to SE Radio, an educational program brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine. For more information about the podcast, including other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. To provide feedback, you can write comments on each episode on the website or write a review on iTunes. Mention or message us on Twitter, at SE Radio, or search for the Software Engineering Radio Group on LinkedIn, Google+, or Facebook. You can also email us at team at se-radio.net. This and all other episodes of SE Radio is licensed under the Creative Commons 2.5 license. Thanks again for your support.